0: To the book of Isaiah, chapter 17 this morning. Sunday night we're going through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and currently in the book of Isaiah. And these Sunday mornings have been grabbing something out of what we're covering in the broader survey of the book of Isaiah on, on uh, Sunday night. Something that the Lord might want to speak to our hearts. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible... Men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Just wave and get a Bible from them. And please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today if you don't own one. And you'll find it the book Bible is marked right to our passage here that we're studying this morning. Isaiah chapter 17, verse 7. In that day, a man will look to his Maker And his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. He will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. Let's pray together. How thankful we are for your word, Lord. And as we've sung, Be Thou My Vision, you... You are our best thought by day and by night. And Lord, we look forward to you taking this passage and sewing it into all of that big mass of thinking place that we have that is dominated by you. Would you bless your word to our heart? Would it translate, Lord, into a deeper relationship with you than the one we already enjoy? And we thank you for the one we have and a greater awe for you, and a greater expression of our worship towards you, Lord. We pray for that work of your Holy Spirit through your word this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Our text this morning comes from a broader prophecy that constitutes the chapter, and that is a prophecy of Isaiah toward the northern kingdom of Israel to turn away from their wickedness and their idolatry and their sin, that they would turn back to the Lord, that they would turn back, as the Holy Spirit declares in the passage, back to their Maker. I don't know how many of you have experienced this in the course of your life, but I suspect most of you have. Uh, Certainly, if you're my generation, you have. Watching some kind of a Western television show or a Western movie and uh, here you have the bad guy and he's uh, kind of caught the good guy unawares and the good guy's got his hands up in the air and the bad guy's got his six-shooter aimed at him and he declares to the good guy, prepare to meet your maker. Well, you know, it's bad behavior for sure. We don't want to emulate that. But it's very, very, very good theology. Theology. And the writer Isaiah here declares that each and every one of us has a maker. We are not, as evolutionists teach, the product of natural selection, acting upon purely undirected and random mutations. But we have, individually as human beings, we have a maker. We've been created by God. And not just by any god but by the God of the Bible, as he's described in verse 7, the Holy One of Israel. And, of course, Genesis chapter 1 confirms all of this, declares there in verse 26, and then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish in the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Not only have we been made by a maker, but the Bible teaches further that we've been fearfully and wonderfully made. Those are the words by the Holy Spirit of King David and that majestic psalm, Psalm 139. David writes, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Think about David writing that 3,000 years ago, just looking at his body, what it could do, and not just the, his physical body, but where his mind could go, what the capacity of emotion in his relationship with God, and he marveled at the creation that he was, and here we are 3,000 years later, how much greater we can marvel in the creation that we are. I don't know, I've never been to one of these museums. It's really not my cup of tea or these kind of um, showings that they they bring from museum to museum. They have a proper word for it, but it's still in my mind at the moment. But they have these things where they've got these human bodies where they're kind of skinned and you in some process that they put them through but you can see every muscle you see the cardiovascular system and and uh, my wife would love those kind of things maybe she could go with a girlfriend i have no interest in watching surgery on television like she does god bless you those of you who can do it and uh, and but the what we know about the body that david could never ever have even dreamed of think about the complexity of the human body, the interconnectedness of the human body to say nothing of the greater creation all around us. The marvel of the human eye, even Charles Darwin conceded in his book The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. He wrote, and I quote, to suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances, for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, he wrote, absurd in the highest possible degree. And yet having abandoned his Bible, he was forced to attempt to convince others of the absurd ascribing the origin of the human eye to random change in natural selection. But it's not just the eye. I think about, I think about something that's been of great interest to me recently and that is bones. The marvel of the skeletal system of the human body. How by way of joints and muscles, it is able to move us around. It provides a framework for the rest of the body. It protects the vital organs. It uh, produces blood for uh, the body. Minerals like calcium and phosphorus into our body that to be called upon as needed. These are essential minerals for our DNA and our RNA thus to our very life so the importance of a body, the capacity of bones within the human body to heal themselves over a period of time. But nonetheless, it is built into it by the maker to heal itself. Imagine if you had a house that operated like, uh, you know, the bones do. So the plumbing breaks and you say, well, forget about it. In 48 hours, it'll all be fixed. It'll fix itself. We need a new roof. Don't worry about it. In six weeks... The house will produce its own roof. I mean, the body is an amazing thing, how it repairs itself and and, uh, how it functions. Then there's the complexity, the marvel of the complexity of our nervous system, the cardiovascular system, including the heart, our brain, the miracle that is our skin, the immune system, the perfect design of and match of male and female that allows for human reproduction to occur, the whole miracle of conception and then gestation and then birth and then to say nothing of how this marvel that our bodies are, how it is perfectly made to interact with the atmosphere around us, with the vegetation, the plant life that's all around us, the gravitational pull upon uh, the earth. And I'll tell you, I don't have enough faith to believe that all of this could just come about randomly and to produce in that way the miracle that is every human body, the masterpiece that your body is, that my body is, the testimony that it is to our maker and that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Well, let's take it from the universal to the personal because the Bible is teaching not only does mankind have a maker, but the Bible here teaches that each of us has a maker. You think about the dignity. You think about the meaning that this knowledge brings to our lives. The realization that I have been made personally and individually by God. I have been created by God to know that we aren't just some unknown, anonymous, meaningless soul in a sea of seven billion anonymous unknown, meaningless souls upon the earth, but to realize though I am one among seven billion on this earth, that my life has significance, that God has made you. He made your hands. He made your feet. He made your eyes. He made your mind. He made your emotions, your physical strength, that you, sitting here today, are fearfully and wonderfully made. That you are not the product of this cold, cruel, soulless thing called emotion. That you are not even supremely the product of the union of your father and your mother. But that you have been fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And God spoke this very truth to one of the... Great prophets of the Old Testament by the name of Jeremiah, when at his commission God declared, Before I formed you in the womb, I'm your maker, Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you, and I ordained you a prophet to the nations. A few years ago, we used to sing a song, that captured really the beauty of verse 7 here, the blessing that is ours in knowing that God is our maker, and not only our maker, but when we become a Christian, now our Father. And that song was entitled, I Have a Maker. You might remember the lyrics, I have a maker. He formed my heart. Before even time began, my life was in his hands. He knows my name, he knows my every thought, he sees each tear that falls, and he hears me when I call. And the second line goes on to then speak of the preciousness of not only knowing him as my maker, but knowing him as my father. I have a father, he calls me his own. He will never leave me, no matter where I go. And how wonderful it is to realize That you have been personally made by God, the Holy One of Israel. And further, that you are loved by Him and that you are treasured by Him. What that does within a human life, who understands that, is priceless. And what we rob of a human life, when we rob them of that truth and that realization, is a... Uh, catastrophic loss to realize that I am made by God Almighty himself you think about where the acceptance of that truth will take a person in terms of their own self-acceptance to realize there's only one of me made by God, unique in human history. I worship God, I bring to God in worshiping Him, loving Him with all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my soul and all of my strength. I, When I bring that to God, I bring that to God in a combination and in a way that is different from every other Christian who's ever lived. And the wonder of realizing... I have a maker and what it does in terms of me, how I look at myself and my self acceptance. Then you take and you rob a person, you rob a generation, you rob a nation of the realization that they've been made by God and you tell them that they are the product of a cold and a cruel and a heartless and a meaningless evolution. And then when you watch what that does to generation after generation that's raised by it, then you're shocked at the fact that people have a self-esteem problem. And then we put everything into high gear and we spend hundreds of, of millions of dollars to try and get people to feel better about themselves when we don't realize that we're causing them to rot at their roots in terms of what we're telling them about their origin, and then we wonder that it then affects them adversely in terms of how they see themselves and how we see one another, to say nothing of how we see God and view Him. You think about where that knowledge that I've been made by God Almighty Himself, what it does in a person in terms of understanding the big picture of life, being able to navigate the ups and the downs of life, the heartaches of life, and to realize that I've been made by God, I've been created by God, I've been prepared for what I'm going to face in life with Him. You think about what this great truth that I've been made by God does in terms of the fixedness, the stability, the mental and emotional health that that great truth brings in influencing our life to our mental health and our emotional health. It allows our hearts, it allows our minds, our souls, our strength to soar to places that we would never otherwise know. I'm made by God. I am loved by God. And I'm not the byproduct, as I've said, of this cold, random evolution but i'm made by god and i love by god and it leads me into it a quality of life that i would ever never otherwise know i hate to think about how i would be wasting my physical strength not knowing that god was my maker and then that i've made him my father how petty and small my mind would be if it wasn't able to explore the truth of god's word how small in And selfish I would be emotionally if my emotions were not allowed to respond to the greatness of His truth and then to soar into worship of Him. But the knowledge of the fact that He is our maker, what it does from top to bottom and inside and out in our lives, it can't even be put into words. We can't even estimate it. Properly, We can only scratch at the surface and provide some fodder for thought for how much we would be missing without this realization and how rich we are for knowing it. I think it's also important to notice in our text that it reveals to us that man has a responsibility in all of this. It gives us the logical response of every man... Toward his maker. What is the logical response to a man or a woman who recognizes that we owe our very life and our very existence to God, the God of the Bible, the Holy One of Israel? And he tells us that the response will be, verse 7, that we are to look to him. And the idea of looking there, the original language, it means to look upon, to gaze upon, to look with interest. In other words, as our maker, he's worthy of, every, of being the single great focus of our lives, of having supremely our greatest attention in the course of our lives. He tells us further that we're to respect him in verse 7 as a response. In other words, we're to give him the respect that he so richly deserves. Where our heart is filled with reverence and awe uh, toward him, and that's our attitude toward him. And how best can we show this respect to him? He tells us further in verse 8, we're to worship him and no other. No other God in his presence in our lives. And that is only logical. If he is the maker, if he is our maker, and we owe our life and our existence to him, then why would we worship anyone or anything else? Let a long line of seven billion people form at the throne of God. If he is my maker... If I owe my life and my existence to him, then the worship of anything else, even myself, is folly. The fact of the matter is that every single person in this world is a worshiper. Every one of us in this room is a worshiper. Whether the person is a Christian, whether they're an atheist, whether they're an agnostic, whether they are uh, religious or whatever... It's long been observed concerning mankind that we are incurably religious, and that is true. And that truth is professed openly in the Bible. The Bible declares that everyone is a worshiper of some God. The Bible declares that, practically speaking, there are no atheists in life. That every person in the world is a worshiper. Every person in the world is a worshiper of someone or something. And so often we hear a great deal about the atheist who oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes with great pride, declares that he or she does not believe in God, and in the current American culture, they're admired for uh, doing so and being so. But it's important also to realize that God does not believe in atheists, because practically speaking, they don't exist. Everyone in the world is a worshiper. Well, the question arises, if we're all worshipers, then how in the world do we identify the God that we worship and that we serve? It's very simple. By identifying what is the master passion of my life by identifying what is that one supreme thing that has captured my heart, my mind, my soul and my strength if it's not being directed toward my maker as it should be then it doesn't mean that that ceases to exist in our life it means that it's <coughs> excuse me redirected somewhere else in life to something inferior but it doesn't cease to exist it's always expressed It's always directed somewhere. And so what is that thing that has captured my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength? That's my master passion. What is it that excites me the most in life? What is it that is my first thought when I wake up in the morning? What is it that gets me out of bed in the morning? What is it that I live for? What is it that I think about more than anything else in life? Where do I invest my discretionary time in life? Where does my money go in life? You've heard the saying, follow uh, the money uh, to get an indication of the bottom of something. And the same thing is true here. Where our money goes in life is a very good indicator of my master passion. And what it is in my life. And when I answer these questions, I'll have a good idea of what my God is and my, or my master passion is in life. And oftentimes a person, if they're going to be honest, they'll answer that question by saying, Well, if I run my life through that grid, I would have to confess that money is my God or that sports is my God, or that some hobby is my God, or that power is my God, or that sex is my God, or drugs or alcohol are my gods, or travel, or food, or entertainment, or nature and creation, or even self is my God. The Bible takes it even further. Not only does God teach that every person is a worshiper, but it further teaches... That we're becoming like the God that we worship. And that's a sobering thought. A very sobering thought. And that thought comes from the psalmist in Psalm 115. Allow me to read several verses to you from there. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes they have, but they don't see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Then here it is. Those who make them are like them, and so is everyone who trusts in them. That is idols. Idolatry is simply the worship of any created thing. And there are only two things in the universe. There is the creator and there is everything else. There is the creation. In Psalm 115, the psalmist evaluates the objects of man's worship, the physical idols and images that they worshipped, And he declared again, they have mouths but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, they don't hear. They have noses, but they're incapable of smell. They have hands, but they can't handle or touch anything. They can't feel anything. They have feet, but they can't walk across the room. Nor can they mutter through their throat. God, the psalmist gets all the way. He's just going rock bottom here. He says, All right, I won't ask the idol to speak. Can it grunt? Can it make any noise? Can, cl- can it clear its throat? And say excuse me afterwards is incapable of any sound. And over and over again he declares, they do not, they do not, they do not seven times. They don't speak or see or hear or smell or handle or walk or grunt. And all of that is tragic enough in and of itself. But to the psalmist, the most tragic thing about idolatry is not what idols cannot do. But what they do, and what they do very, very well, and that is to make men like themselves, as empty as they are, as useless as they are. Because God knows that empty, useless idols make empty, useless people, eternally speaking and spiritually speaking. Apart from God, the ultimate capacity of speech is wasted to have talked all my life for 70 or 80 years and to never have used it to speak of God to speak of my maker to never use it to engage in prayer to have had access to that and never talked with him once, to have never used my capacity for speech, to give him praise and to give him worship, is to have completely and totally wasted the capacity and the gift of speech. It is to deny and to waste the ultimate potential of, of the ear, of the hands, of the feet, of life, of breath, all of it is wasted. You deny the human mind the privileges, searching out the majesty and the wisdom of God's word, and that mind will be wasted. You deny a human life of God's purposes for his or her life, of God's path. For their feet, you deny human hands the privilege of doing God's work. Deny him the blessing of knowing that every breath that he takes is a gift from God. You deny his heart the chance to soar at the thought of God's love for him. And the knowledge of that blood-covered Savior on the cross of Calvary. And then what kind of life have you left to him? What kind of a life is that? It's a life that's been wasted. It's a life that has been brought down to the level of an idol. In heaven's estimation, you've left him as lifeless and as useless as an idol. The psalmist had it right. The greatest tragedy of idolatry is not the powerlessness of the idols, but what they do To a human being. And if we become like the God that we worship, and we do, then the only God that is safe to worship in all of the world is the God of the Bible and His Son. The knowledge that we become like the God we worship is one of the most exciting truths in the whole Bible for the man or the woman or the child who worships the Lord Jesus. And what a wonderful life the Christian life is. As every day our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength is made just a little bit more like Christ. Not as fast as I would like sometimes in my life. But it's happening. As we walk with him and we talk with him, A long life's narrow way. Prepare to meet your Maker. It's not only good theology, but it's also good advice. And it's a good exhortation. And everyone should be prepared one day to meet our Maker, because one day we will. And how do I prepare for that day? there's only one preparation and that is to stop and look to my maker and to confess to him. God, I'm a sinner. I've been less than perfect all of my life and I believe that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. I've searched the whole world over within the capacity of my resources to try and find the meaning and the purpose of life independent of you, my Maker. And I've not only come up empty, but I've come up frustrated as well. And so here I am. I'm a sinner. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. As I put my faith in the Savior that you sent into the world to die on the cross is the full and satisfying payment for my sin. I turn from everything else I worship in life or have ever worshipped in life. And now I ask that you would give me the capacity by being born again to love you with all of my heart and all of my mind and all of my soul and all of my strength and enter into experiencing the life that this man behind that pulpit has begun to even try to explain to me this morning. And when you put your faith in Christ this morning, the Holy Spirit will come into your life. The greatest miracle that can occur in human life And you'll be born again by the Holy Spirit and begin a personal relationship with God, with your Maker, and now your Heavenly Father. And it's the life that you've been made for. And that's why there is, as someone has said, in every human life there is this cross-shaped hole in every human heart that you can take and pour the entire world into, and it will never be filled or satisfied. Because until we are doing what we have been created to do, there will always be that sense that there must be something more than I've experienced. Because until I'm engaged in what I've been created to do, and that is to be in relationship with my Maker, then there is something more to life than you've experienced. And it is the something without which nothing else in life will make sense. After our service, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service. And they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin that relationship with God today, with your maker, and soon to become your heavenly Father. The children of Israel in chapter 17 here, so many of them, they were so, they were God's children, but here they are addicted to sin, addicted to idolatry. And God was going to bring a judgment upon them. And this judgment is always with the idea of producing restoration. Always. Always. And he said that in this judgment there would pe- be people that would turn back to him and worship their maker. And sometimes, I, and I, I respect so much the Old Testament saints who did that. They said, what kind of a life are we living? This is crazy. We know better. I'm turning back to God. And sometimes it takes a judgment. Sometimes it takes chastening. So for some people it takes the, their whole world crashing and burning before they will give any consideration to God or turning back to God or even turning back from a back state. And so often there it is. Everything is up in flames in my life. And then what is the thing that we think about in terms of God's offer to us to return to him, our maker? We think to ourselves, can I turn to him? Will he accept me when I have made such a mess of my life? And there's that tendency to think, no, I won't come to him when I'm rock bottom. I'll clean myself up and my situation up a little bit so that I don't come to him in quite this dire of (laughs) straits. I'm always working this thing. And these men and women said, no, the light has gone on for me. It's crazy. Here I am, a child of God, living so far from my Maker. And look what it's made of my life. And they turn to God in that moment. And it's important that you know it's okay to do that this morning. With a confession of your sin and repentance and turning to God, God will love to have that relationship that you once had with Him be restored Once again, if you're backslidden from God here this morning, your whole world is sinking and you hate to return to Him in that condition, you come to Him anyway. That's His call. Get rid of your idols. Throw it all away. Turn from it this morning and come back to Him. So many did. The time of in which all of this was written in Isaiah chapter 17. And how much more are we able to do it in the New Covenant, where as a Christian, even as a backslidden Christian, the throne of God is described as a throne of grace, where we can yet come to to receive the grace and mercy that we have need of this morning. Are you backslidden today as a Christian? Don't shout out. But in your heart, you know God no more has your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength as Bullwinkle does. And you know it. And you know how far you are from Him. How long are you going to stay there? How many more hours? How many more weeks? How many more months? How many more years? Wasting your life and missing the glory of what is yours in Christ Jesus. What idols. When you and I look at that and we say, what is the master passion of my life? What is my first thought in the morning? My last thought before I fall asleep? Where does my time and where does my money go? What gets the greatest of my strength? Where is my emotion and where is my mind spent? Do you see, I can't honestly say that God would even remotely be in the top five if I were to be honest about my life, let alone in the top three, let alone in the top spot. Then this morning it's important for you to stop and think soberly about the price that Christ paid for you not only to be forgiven of your sin but to live an altogether different quality of life than the one that you once lived and to live that for His glory and for His purposes. And this morning an opportunity to repent as Christians of living even half a step below the life that is ours in our Savior. This worship team is going to come out and I invite them to come out at this point in time. We'll close our service a little bit differently this morning. And I've asked if they would sing and you remain seated for this song. I've asked if they would lead us in that song I Have a Maker. And for us as Christians and those of us who know the Lord and love the Lord to be able to just stop and allow this great truth to just go a little bit deeper in our heart. It's so easy to think of God uh, purely theologically and theology is wonderful but to just stop for a few moments and to speak to Him and to think of Him as our maker, and as our Father. Not the whole wide world, but you individually, and you personally. And then to allow that truth to impact our lives in the way that it's intended to. And so to just say, let every thought, let me just pray for us right now. Lord, we just pray for any thought. Not everyone in this room, Lord, is a great worshiper. You know some of them don't even sing during the whole worship set of worship songs. They read their bulletin, thinks about a lot of different things. And, but I pray that your spirit would come upon them right now. And that you'd anoint them with a spirit of worship to be able to absorb and to receive the truth of this song and then for it to translate into worship toward you. Bless us and anoint us, Lord, to receive in a deeper way the truth of Isaiah chapter 17, verse 7. And Lord, we pray for any backslider that is in our midst, whether openly a backslider or a backslider known only to their husband or their wife and their children, or a backslider that isn't even known to them, but they know that they're a backslider in heart. And we pray, Lord, for a great spirit of conviction, a great draw of your love into repentance today, so that not a single person would leave this room today, not one inch separated from the fullness of the glory of the life that is ours In Christ Jesus, so that we can live a life that blesses you and honors you. And we ask these things of you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.